Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to you this morning. I'm glad to see you here at Red Lane Baptist Church. Man, well, God has continued to just bless us in so many wonderful ways. I'm blown away every morning, every Sunday morning, to see all the kids go out to kids' church. And I know they're going to have an incredible time downstairs learning about Jesus, having fun with one another. And it's just good to see a church that's full of all generations, from young to not so young. I'm getting closer to that, so I'm getting sensitive to that, uh, that age there. But if you will, grab your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and find your place in chapter 9 uh, this morning. We have been asking a question over the last few weeks that I, I've labeled, I've called, the ultimate question. I've said it that way because I believe it really is the ultimate question. And that question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, anyone who's ever heard the name of Jesus, anyone who's ever uh, learned about Jesus, whether it's for the first time or they've been in church or around Christians for a number of years, everyone and anyone who's heard about Jesus has formed an opinion about him. C.S. Lewis would tell us that those opinions will fit one of three categories. Jesus will either be a lunatic, he will either be a liar, or he's the Lord. He cannot be anything other than those three things. The crisis, in the crisis of the Christ, a book written by G. Campbell Morgan, he in that book offers his own perspective on Jesus' identity. I, I find this interesting. Morgan says, Jesus was the God-man. Not God indwelling a man, of such there have been many. Not a man deified. Of such there have been none, save in the myths of pagan systems of thought. But God and man, combining in one personality the two natures. A perpetual enigma and mystery baffling the possibility of explanation. And so, who was and who is this Jesus we read about in the Bible? What was he like? What was his purpose? We, we've been asking that question. We've been trying to figure out what he means to us and how he impacts our lives for over two millennia. People are still discussing that question. Now, obviously, as we think about that, as we consider what we see in the Bible, we consider what we know of history concerning Jesus, it's obvious that he was no ordinary man. James Hefley uh, makes this clear. As he said this, and it's quite a long quote, but I, I believe this helps us to understand the irony concerning Jesus. He says of him, Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. Worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. Never put his foot inside a big city. Never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion, opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the one piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was a coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. 
19 wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. And here's what I really want you to see. I am within the mark, Hefley says, when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Yet he is unlike the rest of us. You know, as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, and more specifically through the chapters of 7, 8, and 9 over the last several weeks, I wonder and I hope that you've been able to answer that question. Who is Jesus? I hope you've been able to answer the question, not just in the large theological realm, but I hope you've been able to answer that question for yourselves personally. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus for me? We keep hearing in church, and we say it all the time, that, that Jesus wants to move in your life, and Jesus wants to transform your life. We've been reading these stories within this gospel of Jesus uh, healing the sick and raising the dead and stepping into the hard spaces of people's lives. And so who is this Jesus that we're constantly called to embrace as Lord and Savior? Have you settled it for yourself? I was thinking just the other day that in April, toward the end of April, it will be uh, 20 Seven years, I believe, since I settled that question for myself, wrestling with who is Jesus to me, looking largely on the beginning side through the lens of religion and, and hoping I could kind of fit Jesus into my approach to life. But then on that particular day in April, I believed the gospel. And for me, Jesus became Lord and Savior, not because of something I conjured or fit him into, but I believed the gospel and believed on him for salvation. It became settled in my heart and mind. Peter, as we've seen already, on behalf of he as well as the other disciples, settled the debate for themselves. When Jesus asked them who they believed him to be, Peter emphatically stepped up and says, you're the Christ of God. Matthew helps us to understand a little bit more fully where he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But as we discovered last Sunday... Jesus took that statement, that rock-solid statement of faith, and, and affirmed it to them and, and even used it to change the name of Simon. He became Peter, and, and Jesus says that upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. This is a wonderful moment in Peter and the disciples' lives. It's a wonderful moment for us in the church. Jesus explained how he was going to take up his cross uh, and that his disciples, his followers, needed to do the same. We saw that last week as we talked about discipleship and what it means to follow him, that we are to die daily, that we are to die to ourselves and, and become alive in Christ each and every day. We saw how Jesus explained why this was necessary because all of the things of this world can never satisfy the deep longings of our soul, not worth the price of our souls. Also that Jesus gives us a reward there. He talks about how we get to experience his glory. We get to experience the kingdom of God. It's the promise that all the self-denials and all the suffering endured in this life will one day re be replaced with the reward of glorious joy and the blessings to come in the kingdom with Jesus. As an offering of hope and encouragement to his disciples, 
We read in verse 27 that we're going to see in just a moment that that Jesus said that there's a few of them standing there in that circle of 12 men that would actually get to put their eyes on this kingdom, this already but not yet presence. As Jesus is coming, he's bringing the kingdom, but it's not yet the full kingdom. And so as they look at Jesus and they're trying to figure out who is this man who confuses us, he doesn't fit the paradigm that we have for the Messiah, Three of these guys are going to actually get to see that. They're going to get to catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, Jesus in a fuller manifestation of his kingdom. This foretaste of what was to come that we read of in the next set of verses also answers this question for us. Who is Jesus? We're going to see in just a moment how the Father steps in to the scene and he answers the question. But The answer's already been there, hasn't it? The answer has been there in every story that we've read. Think about this. As Jesus has healed the sick, and as Jesus has raised the dead, and as Jesus has cast out the demons, and as Jesus has fed the multitudes, as Pastor Nate was sharing with us a few weeks ago, as Jesus has done all of those things, what's the answer to the question? Jesus has to be God. No prophet can do that. No teacher can do that. No good man can do that. Definitely no sinner can do that. So the Bible's been telling us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Savior, that he is the Christ. And so the 12 are beginning to understand that. They're beginning to see that for themselves. Yet this was, there's still much that they did not comprehend. Remember as we talked about this last Sunday as Jesus in Matthew's gospel uh, unfolds that he's going to go to Jerusalem and, excuse me, As he goes to Jerusalem, there he's going to be rejected by the Pharisees. He's going to be uh, arrested. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be crucified. And and then he's going to be raised from the dead. And Peter, in his understanding of who Jesus was and is at that moment, could not comprehend that. And so at some point, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Can you imagine doing that? Jesus, I know you're the author of everything, but you really kind of got this mixed up. Let Let me inform you. Matthew tells us that Jesus rebuked him. Mark tells us that he said, get behind me, Satan. And so while they're beginning to see who Jesus is and beginning to understand what he was there to do, they did not yet fully understand that. So the passage that we're looking at this morning, the next step, the next progressive step in our walk through the gospel of Luke, we're going to see that heaven answers as God the Father steps into this question to settle it, not just for Peter, but for you and I today. And so join me, if you would. Luke chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 27. Maybe last Sunday you were wondering why I didn't uh, read that verse, which is probably connected with the passage that we were dealing with last Sunday. Uh, But I believe it fits best with the teaching and the story of the transfiguration. So verse 27. But I tell you, Jesus saying here, speaking here, I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Luke tells us in verse 28, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Your Bible probably has above these verses, specifically verse 28, the transfiguration. We refer to this story in the Gospels as the transfiguration of Christ. Luke's account of it really is steeped in Old Testament language. R. Kent Hughes kind of speaks of it like this. He says, he says it invites us to enjoy a biblical feast. And so let's go on a feast. Y'all hungry this morning? Let me just give you some, t- some context of what's going on here. The meal that's served up for us in this feast is the Shekinah glory of God, that visible presence of God amongst his people, that visible presence that is there in the cloud. If you were here during the, the month of December as we were in that series on the God with us, Emmanuel, I, I talked about the Shekinah glory of God. and We see it first in the nation of Israel, among the nation of Israel, when Israel was leaving Egypt after the exodus or as they were exiting, or a part of the exodus from the land of Egypt, and they're headed to the Red Sea, and as they begin to leave the nation, God comes in his glory in this pillar of cloud by day, and it turns into a pillar of fire by night, and so God is leading his people, he's protecting his people, he's providing for his people through this Shekinah glory of the cloud. God demonstrated his presence in it amongst his people. As we read and continue in that story, we see that the most intimate encounter with the Shekinah glory of God, with this cloud, was experienced by Moses when he received the second rendering of the law on those stone tablets. Exodus 33 and 34, he's, uh, he's invited back up to the mountain. He had come down, if you remember, and he found the people of God uh, worshiping the calf that they had created because he was so long in the mountain and had not returned yet, and they wondered had, what had become of him. He comes down. He finds that they've already broken the commandments he held in his hand, so he throws the commandments down and shatters them on the ground in a rebuke to the people of God. And so he's in the tent of meeting, he's meeting with the Lord, and in that moment he gets caught up in, in his love for the Lord, and he asks, he, he, he demands almost to see the glory of God. And God in his goodness and God in his grace invites him back up to Mount Sinai. He tells him to bring two stone tablets with him, and there on the mountain as he is asked to see the glory of God, God has promised, you're going to come up here and I'm going to let you see the back of me. I'm going to let you see a glimpse of me. I'm going to put you into the cleft of the rock, and as I pass by, this is anthropomorphic language here. God is spirit. He's not a person, but it's written and told in such a way that we can understand it. So it's in our understanding that, that he describes here that God is passing by, almost like he's walking by. He's going to hold him in the cleft of the rock. God's going to cover him with his hand. He's only going to get to see the back of him, but he catches a glimpse of the glory of God. It's the first set of encounters with this glory. 
We also see the Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and the temple. When both of those places of worship were erected and dedicated to the Lord, the same thing happened. As Moses offered sacrifices and, and commenced or dedicated the tabernacle to the Lord, and as Solomon did the same for the temple, the glory of God fell, and, and you could see this cloud ascending back up to the Lord from the tabernacle and the temple. That's the glory of God. We also see the Shekinah glory in the prophet Ezekiel while he's in exile. There in his vision in Ezekiel chapter 10, he saw the cherubim with the four spinning wheels leaving the temple. And as those, those cherubim with the four spinning wheels were there, above them floated the dazzling glory of God. And this scene, the glory of God was moving slowly to the east, leaving the, tap, the temple court area, crossing the Kidron Valley, up onto the other side of the Mount of Olives. It hovers for a little bit, and then the glory departs. Might be able to say that Ichabod is now written over, in a sense, the temple. For the next 600 years, in the temple there, there will be no glory ascending from the temple. Right? You don't read of that in the Gospels. You don't read in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't read of them going to the temple area and, and there being this scene where the Shekinah glory of God is ascending back up to the heavens where you can see the visible presence of God among his people. You don't see that because the people of God have rejected the Lord and his glory has departed and it's going to stay departed for 600 years. That's a bleak ending to the story. But it's not the end of the story. On a cold winter's night, two Hebrews had left their village in the northern part of the country, in the land of Galilee, had traveled down to the city or the village of Bethlehem, and we find them in a stable. The young man of this couple, his name is Joseph, and he's holding a newly born baby boy. He's holding that baby boy up. It's not his biological son, but as we read, he's going to raise it as his own. His wife, his name is Mary, and she's just given birth to this baby boy, and everything has happened just as the angel Gabriel had said it would, that she would, be, uh, she would become pregnant, not through the use of a man, but through the Holy Spirit as God overshadowed her. She's going to carry this boy to term, and, and he's going to be born. His name is going to be Jesus. And so as that is taking place, as this baby Jesus is being born, the angel of the Lord is also appearing to some shepherds who are watching their sheep out in the countryside. The glory of God is showing all around them as the heavens erupt in glorious praise. And so after 600 years where there is no Shekinah glory there amongst the people of God, the Shekinah glory has returned. It's not in a pillar of cloud this time. It's in a little baby boy who is the very son of God. God's glory is present among his people. And so this angel of the Lord told the shepherds that they would find a baby in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and that this baby boy born that day was no ordinary child. The angel of the Lord declares in that moment he is Savior and Christ. Two different Greek words speaking of what Jesus would do. So it's significant that the first mention of the Savior in the Bible is found alongside the very first sin. Have you ever thought about that? As we focus, unfortunately, a lot of our attention as Christians on the New Testament, 
The New Testament fulfills everything that's been saying and speaking about in the Old Testament. So when we think of a Savior and we think of forgiveness of sins, when we think of a Messiah and the Christ, the first mention of that is laid alongside the very first sin in the history of humanity. Where do we find that? Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve have eaten of this forbidden tree. God is cursing them rightly for their sin. And in that, we find the grace of God where God says, there will be a man born or a boy born from your descendants. And this boy will crush the head of the serpent who has deceived you, even as the serpent bites his heel. He's going to die, but his death will bring victory and that victory will be for you. And so we see that picture of salvation from the very beginning at the very first sin. And throughout the progressive revelation of Scripture, we continue to see this image, this teaching, this story. We see this picture presented in the ark, Genesis chapter 6, where man is so wicked, God is going to destroy them. But in his grace, he preserves Noah and his family. Where's Christ in that story? Jesus Christ is the ark that carries them through the judgment waters. We see Jesus in the Old Testament. We see Jesus also in the story of the Passover, as we've looked at in recent days, as um, Moses comes to deliver the people of Israel in bondage. There is a Passover lamb. The blood is shed so that when judgment is coming, those who are under the blood are forgiven and spared by the grace of God. We see it in the Day of Atonement, in the law, all of these pictures and so many more. In them, heaven has been declaring the answer for, from sin. And it's been that way from the very beginning. So throughout history, as man has wrestled with sin and wondered how to get out from under its tyranny, heaven has continually pointed to the Savior. Even as these disciples in this passage are wrestling with the identity of Jesus and how to fit the story of God's salvation into their story, heaven once again answers and seeks to settle the question. The debate, they debated among themselves, and they even debated over Jesus about his own identity and his own mission. And in that moment, heaven speaks and has the final say. I want us to, I want us to see four truths about who Jesus is as heaven answers this question this morning. Here's the first truth that I want you to see. And excuse my voice today. I have been battling something with my throat, and uh, I got a tickle. And I'm just hoping that I don't have one of those moments where uh, our wonderful student pastor has some, some opportunity to make fun of me this week. <clears throat> He's a jokester. He just doesn't have to preach like this 50 Sundays a year. Number one, Jesus is greater. I want you to look there in verse 29. Luke says, Luke says and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. What are we to see in this description? I believe what Luke is driving at here, what the Holy Spirit's leading Luke and the other gospel writers uh, to, to show us, it is a comparison between Moses and Jesus. We're to see here that Jesus is greater than Moses and the prophets. He's greater than the law of God. Not not. not relegating it, not negating it, but greater than it, fulfilling it, so to speak. So we're meant to see in this scene a parallel between Moses on Mount Sinai and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but that Jesus is greater. 
You see, both men went up on the mountain. There's similarities there. Both men talked with God the Father. Both men had their faces changed. The Bible tells us that when Moses came back down from the mountain in Exodus 34, his face shone. He had been in the presence of God. You see, while there are incredible similarities, there are also significant differences. Let me give you four of those this morning. First of all, Moses' face shone with God's glory, but Jesus' entire appearance changed in a flash to radiate glory. This is quite a spectacle. If you can imagine this scene here. I love how Arkent Hughes describes it. He says, Jesus was framed by a thousand summer stars. As Peter, James, and John wake up from their slumber and they see Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah, they see this glorious, dazzling, shining glory of God. Luke describes it, saying his clothing became dazzling white. This term is for white is the Greek word lukos. It's the grand apocalyptic color representative of what is Beyond. If we read the book of Revelation, we see that this term white is used specifically in three instances. It describes the white stone in Revelation 2. It describes the white uh, horse in Revelation chapter 6. And it describes the white throne in Revelation chapter 20. Matthew adds to this description that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Have you ever looked at the sun without sunglasses? Or even with sunglasses? Man, it is so bright. You can't even... It's like, it's worse than staring at these lights here. They're shining me in the eyes. It's bright. It's dazzling. It's glorious. And so for a brief moment, what we're seeing here is that the veil set over Jesus' humanity, that, that veiled his deity, is lifted, and his true essence is permitted to shine through. This was both a glance back into his pre-human glory. Remember, Jesus was not created when he was conceived in the womb. Jesus is pre-existent. He is eternal. So it's a look back to his pre-human glory. It's a look into the future of his post-human glory. So here we are meant to see that Jesus is glory in and of himself. Think about this. Moses' face shone with the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God. Jesus radiated glory because he is God. That's what we're to see here. There's another difference that I believe is significant. Moses was alone on the mountain. Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus. That's what we see in this story. So as Jesus stood here radiating light, both Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Have you ever thought, why these two? Have you ever wondered about that? Or do you just kind of breeze through the text? You never ask questions of like, why, why is this here? What's the big deal? There's a lot of other prophets. Why not Isaiah and Jeremiah? Why not Elijah? Elisha? Why, why not uh, Abraham? What? He's Father Abraham. He's the, he's the founder of the nation of Israel. Why wasn't Abraham there? Why Moses and Elijah? I don't have the definitive answer, but here's some suggestions. Perhaps the reason lies in the fact that both of them spoke with God on mountaintops. Moses went up on Mount Sinai. Elijah spoke with God on Mount Hor, which is another name for Mount Sinai. Both prophets, both men, also had been shown God's glory and had famous departures from this life. There are all sorts of reasons that we might point to as qualifiers for their appearance here with Jesus. That's not the main point, but it's kind of fun to think about. The main thing that we want to see is that in this, they both appeared with Jesus. Moses was alone on the mountain. 
Jesus has these great heroes of the faith. Men that the nation of Israel would have revered standing with him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They attended to him, which speaks of Jesus' superiority and his greatest. There's a third uh, significant difference, and that is Moses received the law, but Jesus is discussing the gospel. As Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus here, Luke tells us they spoke of his departure. So how could we jump to the conclusion that it's the gospel? Well, what do we know of his departure? What has to take place for Jesus to depart this world? Mount Calvary, right? Crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension. That's the gospel message. That's what Paul says is the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So Jesus here is not speaking about law or receiving the law like Moses. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the fulfillment of what the law was pointing us toward. There's a fourth significant difference, and that is Israel, apart from a mediator, wanted to hide from God's glory. But here, Peter, James, and John, when they see Jesus in his glory, want to worship. Now, let's be kind to Peter here. Peter is often, like you and I, our words are ahead of us. And Luke even says this, that Peter wasn't really thinking about what he was saying when he said, Jesus, it'd be great if you guys kind of hung out. Let's, I'll build some booths. I got some guys here with me, James and John. We're going to put together some booths, some tents, and let's just hang out. We want to push back on that and say, Peter, come on now. You dumb little Peter. Um, you, you don't know what you're doing. You're putting your foot in your mouth again. That's where we want to go. But what's... What's the significance here? They wanted to be with Jesus. I believe it's a picture of worship. They didn't fully understand it. They were way off the mark, but there's a desire to be with Jesus. On the other side, when Moses is up on the mountain and Moses comes down and his face is shining and they see and hear the thunder and, the, and all of the glory that's going on up there, they say, Moses, you go up and be with God and you mediate between us. We dare not go before the presence of God. They feared that. Peter, James, and John are saying, we want to set in this, right? So there's There's a difference here. So we were to see that Jesus is greater than this comparison with Moses and the law. Perhaps the most significant difference between Moses and Jesus in these two scenes is that God the Father speaks to the disciples to answer the question of who Jesus is, which brings us to a second truth, and I need to hurry. First First time I'm going to say that. What's the, what do we see here? Number two, Jesus is God the Son. The Shekinah of glory of God in verse 34 begins to overshadow this mountaintop. And from the cloud comes the Father's voice in verse 35. And so heaven answered the question that these men <clears throat> had been mulling over in their minds and in their hearts. They're wondering who this Jesus is. Remember, Peter has rebuked Jesus saying, surely this will never happen to you. You're not going to go to a cross. You're not going to be killed. You're not going to be buried. You're not going to be resurrected. That's not my picture of the Messiah, so that can't happen to you. And I'll make sure it doesn't. They're trying to figure this out. And so heaven speaks and answers the question. The father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Is this the first time we've heard the father speak concerning Jesus? 
since Jesus has been walking and living on this earth? That's not the first time at all. What do we see earlier? Luke chapter 3, I believe. Jesus comes to the, uh, to the river Jordan. And John the Baptist is there baptizing, calling people to repent and, and follow God in faith. And so Jesus comes there, and as he is baptized by John the baptizer, heaven opens up. The Father speaks, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. So heaven has been answering this question, and this is the second time now that it verbally speaks to the question and answers the question as the Father declares him to be his son. More than likely, Peter, James, and John were not with Jesus for his baptism. So if they weren't there, they would have not audibly heard this, but surely they have heard the stories from the people who were there and saw and heard this spectacle. In any case, the father settles the debate about who his son is, declaring him to be his chosen one, his Messiah, his Christ. Today, if you're still wondering about who Jesus is, I want you to hear from the Father. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He shares deity with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus is God and Messiah. There's a third truth for us to, to know about the Son. That is, Jesus is the final word. The Father commanded Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus. That's what he said. Here is my Son. Listen to him. The words recorded here are not the groggy recollection of, uh, of some disciples that are trying to piece together what took place. Luke tells us that, yes, they had been asleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus in his glory. Meaning they also heard the Father speak from heaven. Peter gives us a clear description of this in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about this moment, how he's seen the Father. John in his gospel would also tell us that he has beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. He saw this on the mountaintop. This was real for them. So the Father's command here as he speaks was emphatic. He speaks to Jesus' superiority over Moses and Elijah as well as the law and the prophets. They were only partial expression. What does that mean? Jesus is the final statement. Jesus is the final word. He's the full expression of God. The writer of Hebrews says it well. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zephaniah, the prophets of God. But look what he says in verse 2. But in these days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus is the one to whom both the law and the prophets have pointed. John would later say of Jesus, as I said earlier, that he is the word made flesh who has dwelt among us. John would also record Jesus' very own words in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the final word. He's the ultimate statement. He's the full expression of the deity of Almighty God. There's no one greater, there's no greater word on redemption, which brings us to a final truth this morning. Number four, Jesus is the focus of everything. Verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, told no one in those days of what they had seen. I'm not going to deal a lot with that second expression there. It goes back to what we were looking at last week, is Jesus did not want them to get ahead of the timeline 
we see in the other Gospels that Jesus told them specifically not to talk about this. It's not that they just said in their mind, kind of like the, the impression Luke would give us, is they said, we don't really understand this. We're not going to talk about it. But Jesus, as Matthew and Mark tell us, commanded them not to say anything, not to get ahead of the timeline. But the other, and the, perhaps maybe the greater point in verse 36, is that Jesus is alone. When all of this is taking place, Moses and Elijah are no longer there, and Jesus is by himself. Yes, the disciples are there, but it's not Moses and Elijah. It's Jesus alone. They're no longer standing with him. So this image reveals that everything the Old Testament has been pointing, everything the Old Testament has been revealing about the Messiah is wrapped up in Jesus. He's, he is its focus. That matter, he's the focus of all of history. It's no surprise, or it should be no surprise, that for millennia, we have actually divided history based upon the birth of Jesus Christ. You think that's an accident? Now, we have, in our secularness, in the last several years, changed that, if you haven't realized that. It's no longer AD, it's some other acronym, A-C-E or something like that. But for Hundreds, if not thousands of years, we have looked at history and said, pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. Why? Because all of history is about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has come to do for you and for me. He is the focus of everything. He is the focus of eternity. So Jesus then is everything. Therefore, what we believe about Jesus is everything to us. All that the Bible has been speaking, all that the Bible has been pointing toward, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Why is that a big deal? There's a lot of reasons to that, or a lot of answers to that question, but one of the things it helps us to understand is that the focus of the Bible is not calling you and I to be religious. It's calling us to consider the God who wants to be in relationship with us. And that we can't do anything in our religiosity to garner that relationship or earn that relationship, but God, in his grace, desires to freely give it to you and I. So who is Jesus? Settling that question for yourselves? As you wrestle with it or as you think about how you've responded to it, does it take you back to a day and a place and a time in your own life? For me, it takes me back to April 24th, 1997, as I got up that morning as a religious freshman at the University of Arkansas who read his Bible and prayed twice a day, who was teaching seventh grade small group in the student ministry who had graduated from a Christian school, grew up, at least in my high school years, very involved in the church. I knew the gospel, had shared the gospel, led people to Christ, leader in my student ministry, and yet I was miserable until that day. God, in his grace, spoke to me from 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, that says, He who has the Son has life, which I did not have. He who does not have the Son does not have life which I firmly understood that. And so that day, God worked in my heart and brought me to a place. And so as I'm working that Thursday at Mark's Electrical and Plumbing Supply, it was a day that I was not in school. And so as I'm working there in that warehouse, pulling orders and making deliveries, God was moving in my heart so much so that I found a place to get alone by myself, which was in the restroom in the showroom up in the front of the building. And I got down on my knees in that restroom, and I, 
I don't know if I actually put my arms on the toilet or not, but I kind of made that area throne room to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, I confessed my sin. Said something like this, Lord, I've been religious. I've been trying to make this work, but I just want to be forgiven. I want to know your salvation. And I remember standing up that day, and, and I'm not a mystical person. I'm not a subjective type of guy. I'm a black or white type of person. And I stood up, and I felt different, though. I felt the weight of my sin that I'd been bearing for so long lifted from me. Was I made completely sinless? Not at all. But I'd been made whole. And my sins had been forgiven. And now I've been in a process of sanctification for 26 years or so, walking with Jesus, walking in more and more conformity with Jesus Christ. But on that day, the question was settled in my heart. Who is Jesus? He is my Lord and my Savior. And today, some of you in this room, you need to settle that for yourselves. Maybe some of you in this room, you settled it a long time ago, but you're walking into guilty distance. You're, you're a Christian. Yes, your, your life has been changed. Your, life has been, your sins have been forgiven. But for whatever reason, you're now walking at a distance from the Lord when he wants you to walk in step with him. He doesn't want you lingering behind. He doesn't want you uh, getting off the trail into danger and harm. He wants you to be with him. And so this morning, as you think about your own life, you're realizing the sins that's keeping you from that. You're realizing the, the things that are hindering you from being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're even in a state where you want to distance yourselves from those who are actually walking with Jesus. You ever been there? I have. Where you're uncomfortable being in the presence of others because you know they walk with Jesus on a more intimate basis than you are. And so you're like, I don't want to be with them. I want to, I want to put myself around others who are in my wicked state. That's not where you want to be at all. You want to walk with Jesus and walk with Jesus' people. So this morning, as you think about that, who is Jesus to me? He's Lord and Savior, and I'm walking in step with him. What does that mean for you? What do you need to do? Maybe you need to give your life to Christ. Maybe as a Christian, you need to repent of sin and, and be freed of that sin and renewed, restored from that sin. Man, there's always forgiveness available. 20-plus years of ministry, I, I've... Walk with men and women and couples and families through all sorts of sin. Here's the common denominator in all of that. It doesn't matter what you've in, engaged in. The grace of God is greater. Where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. So this morning, what would call you back to him? It's grace. Why would you hinder that? Why would you push back against that? The ultimate question, who is Jesus? Let him be Lord and Savior of your life. As we read this passage, we're not called to be more religious. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to be made alive in Christ. Trust in religious activity would say this, I can make myself better. I will be accepted by my sincerity. I will be accepted by my commitment. Hey, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to understand like like the people of old that when they saw their sin, they would say Woe is me, I am undone. Isaiah 6. I am unclean and I live amongst an unclean people. And in that scene, as Isaiah realizes his own sinfulness, we would look at it and say, man, Isaiah, he looked pretty good. But against, juxtaposed against the holiness of God, he saw himself as undone and under the judgment of God. And even in that situation, the grace of God comes. God takes uh, uh, the... 
the uh, coal from the altar and he touches his lips with it. It's a picture of God cleansing Isaiah. Come home this morning. What is it the Lord's speaking to you about? Maybe this morning uh, the Lord is saying, you know, you've been visiting Red, Line, Red Lane for a while now and, and it's time for you to put roots down in here in this local fellowship. And this morning you need to come and say, Pastor, uh, we believe the Lord's calling us to this church. We want to begin the process. What is it you need to respond to this morning? Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? If not, you come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the picture of salvation that we see here in this text we've seen this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your blessing. We thank you that it doesn't matter where we're at. Peter is rebuking you. He's rebuking the Lord Jesus. And, and yet in the next scene, even as he perhaps makes a fool of himself again, Jesus is so gracious and so good. Doesn't rebuke him. Doesn't cast him out. He invites him even that much closer. And so this morning, may we see that and may we feel that today, that your invitation to us is to come and to be near. So, Lord, if sin stands in our way, we, may we be ready and willing to confess and, and, and repent of that sin, to cast it off, receive forgiveness, and now walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for that. Pray that for those who need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that for those who are believers but walking at a guilty distance. Lord, help us to settle the question for ourselves. And Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in the life of our church. I pray for those that you're leading here and have led here. And God, just help us to put roots down and help us to, to, to roll up our sleeves. And, and let's get busy together in this gospel work right here in Powhatan, the greater Richmond area, the state of Virginia, the nation that we live in. And God, help us as a church family as you draw us in more and more to touch the nations with the gospel. Speak during this invitation. Better yet, give us ears to hear as you speak. In this invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.